This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with journalist and author Kate Lever. Kate joined me to talk about her new book, Good Dog, which looks at the many benefits of the canine-human bond, as well as the many ways that dogs save our lives. It's great to be with you wherever you are and um, wonderful to have reached the final interview with Kate Lever, who is a journalist and an author, and um, she's written a beautiful book called Good Dog, and um, she's done some fantastic research, which has taken her to different parts of the world, in fact, and she's been looking into some of the real-life stories about um, humans and their relationship with dogs and also looking into the scientific studies that have been done on dogs and their emerging and increasing role that they play in the health and well-being of humans, that it's a two-way street that uh, often the dog, of course, benefits but so does the human and there are different ways that that exchange occurs. So we're going to be talking all about this and talking about Kate's new book which has just been released. So I'm really pleased now to welcome Kate Lever who joins us on the phone. Hi there Kate. Hi Amy, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I feel like who could turn down an, an offer to talk about dogs? <laughs> so, so oh, you feel that way. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's like very, very much, I feel like, my favourite topic. I'm probably like you, perhaps, when I was reading your chapter about your dog, Bertie, um, and you just have so much love for for yeah, your dog. Yeah, I totally do, yeah. It really does come through. And, you know, I tend to spend a lot of time gushing about um, my best friend, Barney, who is a Labrador. And oh, sweet. Yeah, he's 13, so he's getting on. Um, oh, yeah, so amazing. it's amazing. Yeah, he's such a beautiful soul. And I could just tell that um, you just have such a, a strong emotional connection with your dog and I know a number of people listening would also kind of have that similar feeling so I'm really glad that we get to explore that and more um, with you now. Yeah absolutely I think um, well I mean that, that's basically why I wrote the book as an excuse to just write about my favourite animal for 50,000 words. <laughs> Seems like like the best job you could possibly set up for yourself. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> exactly it was delightful the research was excellent Lots of patting, good boys and good girls. Aww. <laughs> um, so let's just jump straight into your chapter about mm. um, you and your relationship with Bertie. And you kind of give this beautiful context and um, also the story of how your dog came into your life. And of course, you did have a dog before Bertie as well, who yeah. seems like she had a very unique personality as well. So I just wanted to understand from your perspective, what made you initially have a dog or get a dog? Because I think a lot of people listening who don't have a dog might have complained about wanting one to their parents if they are a kid growing up yeah. and, and kind of having this yearning for a dog. And I, I just wondered what was your kind of reason behind it? 
Well, I had some dogs growing up, and I think my favourite book was this glossy textbook that had every dog breed in it. And um, I used to just be obsessed with Border Collies and mm. Cocker Spaniels and just any beautiful dog breed. Well, they're all beautiful dog breeds. And then I guess I got to being an adult, and I must have been in my mid-20s, and I was in a long-term relationship, and I just sort of decided it was time. I've always been a dog person. Um, I've had them around me throughout my life, and I just decided, you know, you, you kind of have this revelation when you're in your 20s that, like, your life is your own and you get to make your own decisions. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I can get a dog if I want. Um, so I started looking on rescue websites because I think that's the right way to get a dog. Um, and I found this ridiculous-looking animal called Natasha, at Monica's Doggy Rescue, which is in Ingleside in Sydney. And she was in a little rainbow sweater, and she looked so grumpy. Um, she was a little Shih Tzu cross Maltese, and she'd been in the shelter for a long time because she was quite elderly. She was about eight years old when we got her. And I renamed her Lady Fluffington, um, silent middle name Beyonce. <laughs> and uh, she was just like the first great canine love of my adult life. Um, and that's when I discovered what a wonderful support dogs can be through periods of sadness. I've been living with bipolar disorder for most of my adult life, and I still go through periods of depression. And that sort of having her in my life throughout that time, and then also the breakup of that significant relationship I was in when we got her, she just really consoled me and gave me comfort and joy at a time that I needed it. Um, and when she died, I really grieved for her. In a way, I might grieve for a family member. I was really distraught. It took me a while, but I sort of looked at my grandma, who's no longer with us, but she was probably the, the most ardent dog person I've ever known in my life. And um, when her dog died, she found a way to have love in her heart for another dog. And I took inspiration from that and decided to get another dog um, and find a way to love him. And I think I, I love him every bit as much as Lady Flossington, if not even more in a sort of crazed, effusive way. Uh, so that's when, Bertie, that's when Bertie came about. So different boyfriend, same breed of dog. Um, he's also a Shih Tzu with a bit of something else in there, I think, as well. But um, that's anyone's guess what other breed is in there. But we, well, we got him when we were living in London from a shelter called Battersea, which has been around for a very long time. So he's almost three now. We've had him a couple of years. I never intended to get a puppy. I, I would have rather get an elderly dog, but then I saw his picture on the website and I just I couldn't help it. I just fell in love with him and I had to have him. <laughs> it's worked out very well. He's an angel. and he, he I've had a, a pretty rough, depressive episode uh, in the time since we adopted him and he just refused to leave my side. He just sort of lay across my body or lay at my feet and just would not move, um, but also gave me the gift of needing to go outside. So where my usual instinct might have been to hibernate through the, the depression, you know, he needed to go for a walk every morning. So it got me out into nature, uh, having some movement and in the fresh air, which is, as we know, kind of can be very effective for our mental health yeah, treatment. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and you do. <laughs> he sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and you describe when you you saw his photo on the dog shelters website, and you just kind of instantly knew that he was the one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I don't usually put much store in the idea of fate, but I feel like maybe dog fate is something I could get behind <laughs> um, because I I really did spend several months scouring the rescue sites online. Um, desperate to get another sort of shih tzu cross something or other 
just because I find them to be, I don't know what it is. I mean, they're a ridiculous-looking animal. They look like Ewoks or gremlins. They're just a little, they're sort of flat-faced little white creature, and um, I don't know why, but I just have a fascination with them. So, yeah, there was something about his little face, and one of the photos that was up online was of him weeing against a fence, and I found that very funny because (laughs) surely you would pick the best photos, and one of them was him weeing, which I found really funny. And I just, I don't know, I just had a, I just had a feeling that it was the right dog for us. Yeah. Um, I, I had to do a little bit of convincing um, of my boyfriend because I think it was his, he, he didn't have dogs growing up. And I think he had this idea of the perfect dog, like a spaniel that could run by your side and then fall asleep by the fireplace. So, you know, like a mm. proper man dog. Um, but uh, I convinced him. Full of energy <laughs> in life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, you do talk about the fact that uh, Shih Tzus are quite sleepy and they kind of have a lot (laughs) of naps, so (laughs) may not be going on a run with him very often. Exactly. I mean, he has a little bit of energy because he's still a puppy, um, but he is pretty slow and likes to sniff a lot of things. And yeah, sleeps probably about 16 or 17 hours a day, which is pretty typical for his breed, um, which suits me quite well because I have quite a sort of gentle nature anyway Mm. um and also i work from home so i can write while he snoozes at my feet or sometimes on my lap which makes it slightly more difficult to type but i put up with it (laughs) (laughs) um so it's you know it suits our lifestyle for him to be as sleepy as he is to be honest he still requires exercise which gets us outside but he's not sort of you know, tearing the house apart or chewing up any of our possessions. So well, that's it's something. Delightful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you write in your chapter about some of the scientific and behavioural research that's been done around dogs, particularly, mm. you know, around why or how they actually do pick up on the mood of a human or their close yeah. human. And I was interested in that because, I, I mean, reading your experience of of Bertie kind of picking up instantly that you need this kind of physical contact and support, um, mm. you know, I have a similar kind of connection with Barney, who is a Labrador, and he just literally, if I, you know, had a moment of sadness or, or something like that, he would just walk from across the room and sit yeah. straight next to me in front of me, you know, looking up at me, putting his head on my knees. Yeah, you know, there's just yeah. that unspoken kind of deep connection that it kind of feels like you have this um, soulful closeness with a dog. What is some of that, I guess, hypothesizing around why a dog might be able to do that? Well, I, firstly, I'm not surprised at all that Barney behaves like that and I think it's beautiful yeah. um, there are two things that I will mention one um, I had this long-standing theory that my dog can smell depression on me which sounds outlandish but it may be true um, I ran it by this one of the world's leading canine behavioral experts whose name is Stanley Corrin he's written a huge body of work on the behavior of dogs and I just said listen I think my dog can smell my depression on me am I mad or is that quite a good idea mm. and he said no no you're not you're not wrong like it's we don't know for sure there's not been enough research done on it but it's entirely possible because dogs can smell parkinson's disease and they can really effectively smell certain types of cancer as well as malaria and they're some of our most reliable diagnostic tests to get a dog to sniff out those types of illnesses so it follows that perhaps 
depression has its own smell that we as humans can't necessarily detect. So perhaps that's how he knows something's wrong. Additionally to that, it could be that my body language changes when I'm upset. Um, you know, perhaps I'm slumping more or moving around the house more slowly, which I would say I certainly do. Um, and perhaps he picks up on something from that. The second thing I would mention is there was a lovely study done that basically concluded that dogs are capable of basic empathy, not only for their own species, but also for the human species. Uh, they basically did a lovely set of, of uh, experiments where they played certain noises to a dog and then monitored their reactions. So some of those noises were neutral noises, like the sound of an insect buzzing or the sound of a river rushing, uh, but others were negative or positive. So the sound of a woman crying, the sound of a dog in pain, the sound of a man laughing and the sound of a dog being happy. And they looked at the reactions in those dogs and basically the dogs did become distressed when they heard those negative noises in both the humans and the dogs. So the researchers do think that dogs are capable of empathy. So if you couple those two pieces of information, the fact that we think they can either smell or detect that something is wrong when we're depressed or when we're sad, with the idea that they are capable of that emotionally sophisticated thought or empathy, then it makes sense to me that they would want to help. Mm. Um, and their best way of helping is just to offer proximity and affection and comfort and to be there by your side. And I don't know how necessarily how sophisticated their thought pattern is in that, but I think there's a sort of primitive, primal kind of instinct to just be with you um, and to offer you comfort in some time. And, you know, talking to a number of other people about the way their dogs help them has only reinforced that idea for me. You know, I've heard stories about people whose dogs have like sat, put their head exactly at the point break in their leg where they broke their leg um, because they detect that something's wrong there and they just want to be close to that person. Or, you know, dogs who stay by someone's side throughout the entire 12-week recovery period from, from cancer treatment. Um, so it's quite remarkable and I am constantly astonished and grateful for the way my dog behaves and the way, you know, other people's dogs like Barney behave as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, obviously dogs in a hospital setting are certainly something that I've seen before and that is really special, I think. Um, and you do also mention that and their role. And um, I was thinking about those kind of neurological conditions like a stroke where people might lose their ability to speak. Um, mm. And so that kind of unspoken interaction is even more important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think certainly with stroke patients, I spoke to a man whose dog spent a lot of time with stroke patients in a hospital. And um, certainly that lack of expectation from another living being, there's no requirement for them to have a conversation. They don't have to explain themselves. They don't even have to answer the question, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. There's just a wordless, conditionless affection and love there, which is can be precisely what someone in that position needs. And it's the same really for any ailment because sometimes sometimes it's wonderful to talk and obviously I believe in talk therapy and compassion for other people and speaking about problems but sometimes you just need to be in the silent presence of a loving creature and that's where dogs can be wonderful because they're never going to ask you any complicated questions or require much from you apart from a little pat and maybe a treat. 
Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it reminds me of my nan who had a dog towards the end of her life and um, he was a a shelter dog and she had dementia and would kind Mm -hmm. of, that would be her companion that she could talk at. She certainly didn't expect him to answer back, but she did have this um, way at least of when she got lonely and didn't have anyone around that she could kind of interact with her her little dog and she may not have had that many conversations that day but she could at least on the flip side just verbalize and just say things because also I I guess it seems like when you're in a a low mood or you're having a bad time if you don't even get to just say words even if they're just to yourself you can kind of end up being very internal absolutely absolutely Um, I think they can be remarkably helpful for people in your grandmother's um, situation with dementia. Um, There's a story in the book, or there's several stories in the book actually, Mm. about a schnoodle who worked in a dementia ward. And that dog just had this beautiful way of bringing someone who has dementia back to themselves, back to their younger self, back to themselves in a period where they had a pet. Um, There was a beautiful example of a a woman, an elderly woman who used to work as a vet and they brought the dog in and she instantly went back into vet mode and said, well, you know, what's wrong with this dog? Let me have a look and um, just went back into work mode and it kind of woke her from the sort of slumber that you can feel as though you're in when you have dementia. Mm. Um, There's another beautiful example of a woman who hadn't spoken in 12 weeks, um, not a word, and then when this dog jumped on her bed, she just started telling a story about another time she'd had a dog um so just beautiful moments and and you know my own grandma benefited remarkably from having a dog around I think it probably kept her alive for many more years than she would have been without him they can just be the most wonderful solace particularly for elderly people who can be lonely no matter what their medical condition may be Absolutely. And one of the really fascinating studies that you referenced towards the beginning of your book is about that kind of brain chemistry and the effects that dogs and humans have on each other that can kind of explain the interaction, the benefit of the interaction and why we kind of have a a sudden uplift in mood and and I guess might feel slightly less anxious or might feel Mm. a a bit more extroverted than normal. And you talk about a Japanese study from 2015 about the levels of oxytocin that occur in dogs and humans. And I wondered whether you could share with us the kind of insights that came from that study and how it, it wasn't really just all about what humans got out of that equation either. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It's probably my favourite piece of research Uh, maybe top three from the book. (laughs) Um, So basically, this uh, Japanese researcher um, conducted a study basically because he has his own two standard poodles and he wanted to know more about his relationship with them. Um, And he invited a whole bunch of people in with their dogs um, and also for control, some people who have pet wolves. I mean, I wasn't aware that people had pet wolves, but they exist (laughs) apparently. Um, And he basically took a urine test to look at their levels of oxytocin. And oxytocin, just as a reminder, is that lovely hormone that we often call the hug hormone or the cuddle hormone. It's what makes us feel trusting and loved. It's what helps us bond with our parents when we're babies. It's a very important hormone for for building trust and loyalty. 
So he wanted to measure their oxytocin levels and then he basically asked them to stay in a room with their dog and make as much eye contact with their dog and or wolf as possible throughout a 30-minute period and then he would take their urine test again to test whether their oxytocin levels had increased at all. And the results were really interesting. So um, for human beings, the people who had dogs, their oxytocin levels increased by 300%. The people who had wolves, there was no effect. But for the dogs, which I think is really interesting, the dogs had a 130% increase in oxytocin as well. So it truly is a sort of mutual thing that is reciprocal between humans and their pets. So oxytocin is that thing that makes us feel comfortable and warm and cosy. We should also be experiencing a drop in cortisol as well, which is our stress hormone. Um, And that happens through eye contact, but it also happens through the action of stroking an animal. So that explains why looking into your animal's face, you know, stroking, having a cuddle with your animal makes you feel lovely and warm. And I think that's rather nice to have some science to back up something that we already suspect about our relationship with our pets. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to hear that the dogs also have an, you kind of have an objective measure of the fact yeah, that exactly. yeah, there's an, <laughs> there's an effect. <laughs> it's not just all take. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, it's lovely. It did make me think that you can't really get angry at your dog if they drop their slobbery covered toy at your feet for you to throw it again because actually you're getting something out of it more than they are. Yeah. <laughs> Mathematically. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Exactly. And apparently they get they get a hit of endorphins when they lick you. Aww. Something I've heard recently which explains because my dog just is obsessed with trying to lick us and we don't usually let him do it, but it explains. It's nice to have a little explanation to understand why they're so compelled to do it. Mm. I suspect it may also be a sort of form of affection, but who knows. Yeah. Well, I think um, my family just got a dog, not my immediate family, but extended family called Bertie and he's a tiny little puppy. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's a terrier, but he just like every time you tried to touch his head, he'd just stick his head up and lick your hand like he just non-stop yeah. licking <laughs> so sweet. it's adorable yeah you definitely have to keep washing your hands though yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so funny I was really also interested in another element which is particularly important and emerging as a real area that's been developing around assistance dogs particularly Mm. in the area of mental health which we have alluded to but there is in fact a kind of training process for different kinds of dogs who can undertake a certain type of training to become a mental health assistance dog and they do Mm. have um, I guess a kind of outfit or a kind of coat to wear um, when you take them out to show that they're there to provide a specific kind of assistance to the person they're with um, and it means that they can accompany them to places where dogs often aren't able to be. Could you share with us that developing area and how assistance dogs that have often been, you know, traditionally known to assist with people like um, who might have epilepsy or diabetes Mm. or um, blindness but also now in mental health? Yeah, I think it's really interesting and I think, as you say, it's a kind of an emerging emerging thing and I suspect over the coming years we will see it become more common. 
But basically, yeah, we already know about guide dogs. Some of us know about diabetic alert dogs and ones with epilepsy. But these days it's becoming more and more common for dogs to be trained to become an emotional or mental health support dog or a therapy dog. So I spoke to one woman, for instance, who has complex post-traumatic stress disorder as well as a number of other mental health issues. And she got a border terrier called Sir Jack Spratica. Just quite a name. (laughs) And he, for example, basically to qualify, this is in the UK, but to qualify as her mental health assistance dog, which means that he can have a special coloured harness that, as you say, allows him to go anywhere he wants with her. Um, He has to qualify by doing three things that help her through life. And for him, that means he can fetch the landline phone for her if she is incapacitated and needs to be able to call emergency services. Um, He can bring her her medication if she gives him the right command. So wherever that is in in her apartment, he can go and do that. Um, And he can also lay across her chest to prevent anxiety or panic attacks. And so being able to do those three helpful things means that he qualifies as a mental health assistance dog, which means he's allowed to go with her wherever he needs to go. Uh, And that has had the most tremendous effect on her life. She has companionship and really, you know, she's self-harmed over many years um, and has sort of overdosed and tried to take her life on many occasions. And since she's had the dog, it's essentially given her a reason to stick around. And I can't think of a more convincing argument for the existing the existence of those kinds of dogs. And it's not the only time I've met someone through my research who's had their life literally saved by that kind of animal. Um, it's quite remarkable. There's another man I spoke to who also has PTSD, but he's a veteran. And his dog stopped him from killing himself twice. She just uh, wouldn't let him do what he wanted to do. And, um, and now she goes with him everywhere. And if he is having night terrors, she puts herself on his body until he wakes up. Sometimes she's been known to sort of scratch him to wake him up and get him out of those night ter- terrors. Um, so they can just be trained to do the most wonderful things and be, you know, truly curative. I, I don't think a dog is necessarily a cure to anything, but mm. they can be so healing and restorative and supportive and it can make the world of difference in someone's life. Absolutely. And I do note that there are so many different ways that dogs have and can save lives. Like there are actually working rescue dogs in so many different circumstances who can, you know, jump into a river, you know, yeah. and and literally save a human being. So there are just so many ways that they are oh, beyond talented, um, a very special, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> special animal. You highlight in your book the fact that human relationships with dogs have been around for a very long time Mm. and that we have really and they have really evolved alongside us and our developing kind of companionship with them. In terms of your research and, and the different stories that you tell in this book, what are some of the kind of striking ways that you feel or that you saw in your research that dogs have really evolved to be or, or that they seem to be kind of uniquely placed to do? And there's mm. kind of examples that you had given that I hadn't considered around autism. But yeah, I just wondered um, about some of the things we may not kind of instantly think of when we associate um, humans and, and dogs. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. We have a 
essentially evolved alongside one another. There's evidence that um, that humans were associating with wolves and then later the sort of cuter version of the wolf, the dog, um, as many as, you know, 33,000 years ago, depending on which scientist you speak to. And there's evidence that, like, our ancestors migrated across huge parts of the world taking their dogs with them. So they've certainly been by, by our side for a long time. Mm. Um, and buried with that, them. And buried with them, exactly. Yeah. There have been dog remains found next to families from as long ago as eight or 9,000 years in Siberia and North America um, and elsewhere around the world, which is really fascinating and just speaks to that long-standing relationship that we've had with them. Obviously, we've bred them to be their cutest possible selves, which <laughs> doesn't always uh, work out well. There are some species of dog, certain sort of bulldogs and flat-faced dogs who have difficulty breathing because mm. we've bred them to a state where it's not sort of um, healthy. So I think it's, as human beings, we don't always get it right, and I think there's some sadness there in the way we've bred dogs. But in, the, in a more positive sense, um, we have bred and trained dogs to be remarkable assistance animals to us and you mentioned the autism support dog i interviewed a, an 11 year old boy called cody um who basically was just fixated on pugs his whole his whole life was about pugs and before he was able to get a pug he would if he was having a sad moment or an angry moment at school or at home he would just consult a little scrapbook where he had pictures of pugs and encouraging statements like imagine patting a pug and he would sit down and he would imagine patting a pug and it would help him. He since adopted a five-year-old deaf pug called Missy um, who's just changed his life. She makes him into a sociable, confident, eloquent young man and has like his confidence levels have just skyrocketed. And that's quite a popular sort of program of becoming more popular, um, the Autism Support Dog Program. There are various organisations around the world that work to train a dog to be an appropriate support animal for someone who goes through autism. And it's, it's not necessarily complicated training. They don't need to be do, doing anything particularly fancy. It's just that they've got the right nature um, and they're able to be sort of stabilising and comforting in those moments of distress that a lot of people who have autism go through on a regular basis. So it's just remarkable to be able to see that. Probably the other example that I think is really interesting is the diabetic alert dog. Um, I met a teenage girl who has a border collie, and when she was 13, she started training him to be able to smell when she had high or low blood sugar, um, and she trained him to wake up her parents. So that, sorry, it's a girl. The dog is a girl. Mm. Uh, the dog um, sleeps beside her and monitors her during the night, and if her blood sugar goes high or low, she just runs into the other room and gets parents for help. And I met her dad as well, and her dad thinks that the dog saves his daughter's life probably once a week, um, which is remarkable. And just yeah. one of those, you know, I don't think I really was particularly aware that that sort of dog existed before I started researching it. So it's just been fantastic to to speak to people about that. Mm. And um, there are so many different breeds that can be an assistance dog depending on the type mm. of thing that they need to do or be able to do. Um, yes. But I'm interested in that 
kind of fact that Labradors and Golden Retrievers have traditionally been a go-to dog for Mm. providing assistance and they're very iconic given their association with being a guide dog, for example. Um, What Do you understand or know the kind of reason behind why or what it is about Golden Retrievers and Labradors that kind of lends them to this type of work? I think it's it's quite a simple explanation. I think simply they just more reliably have that sweet temperament combined with a certain level of intelligence that allows them to pick up the obedience training that they have to go through. Mm. So a lot of like autism support programs work with Labradors and Golden Retrievers, of course, as the guide dog programs. Um, there are a lot of Labradors and Golden Retrievers who are bred for those sorts of programs will start out life training to be a guide dog uh, where they go to something called puppy raisers who are people who take the puppy into their home before they're placed with a blind person and they are responsible for the initial training, obedience training that they go through. So I, I wouldn't use the word failure, but some dogs are not meant to be guide dogs, then they don't pick up on all the um, the skills that are needed. And so they are often reassigned if they're too enthusiastic or too easily distracted um, or perhaps even too affectionate. The guide dog has to be able to really focus on their job because it's their job to guide someone through the world who cannot see. Um, so sometimes a dog is too exuberant to do that and then they get reassigned to a different job. For instance, I met a very sweet dog called Gwen who is a Labrador um, and she works as a court companion dog. So she works essentially as a therapy dog who goes um, and helps out witnesses and victims of crimes before they go into court. So she was started out on the guide dog training program but was reassigned. But they breed Labradors and Golden Retrievers because they're the most likely to be able to follow through on those training programs. And their temperament is just reliably the right level for that kind of work. Um, I know there are other dogs that people have tried with, but I think if you're working with a commercial program that needs to, you know, raise as many competent guide dogs as possible and dogs for other jobs, then it makes sense to be doing a Labrador or a Golden Retriever. I guess also there's the factor of their size. You know, I think Mm. being a guide dog, you need a certain amount of weight for them to be guiding a human being through the world. I don't think a guide chihuahua would have quite the same effect. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be quite as wouldn't be visible to cars. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. I think there's something I think there's probably something also in the branding. You know, you mm. recognise a guide dog because you know that that type of breed coupled with the type of harness that you can see is is something is is a dog you should leave alone to do their job. You know, I spoke to a woman who has a guide dog and um, it was really distressing listening to how she's affected by strangers in the world who don't respect the boundaries she obviously needs for her dog to do her job. Yeah. And people will come and pat the dog even though there's a sign saying, do not pat me. And people will, you know, interfere with her personal space in order to get to the dog when really it should be common knowledge that you don't do that um, when you can see that a guide dog is busy working. Exactly. Yeah. No, I certainly understand her frustration with that. Um, I I know that whenever I take Barney for a walk, I get stopped every like two meters by kids (laughs) and adults who just want to like pat him and he just stands there and doesn't move and 
you know, he's just so placid, just like completely unaffected <laughs> and very smart. I've got to say, I think he's very intelligent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad. I mean, you know from having read my book how much I love my dog, yeah. but I don't think I would say the same about him. I'm not sure how intelligent he is. <laughs> when, when we are out on a walk, if we see a cat at the park or just on the road, mm. he will immediately run back to our house to bark at us. And he'll go to the garden and look for it, even though he just saw it down the road. That's hilarious. <laughs> so I'm not sure how bright he is, but he has many other good qualities going for him. <laughs> That's brilliant. I like the challenge of, um, yeah, like sometimes we have mind games about when he's has to go outside and he'll like just run away from me because he doesn't want to go outside. And he's so good at like avoiding me and knowing which way to run. So (laughs) I ended up having to essentially bribe him and like have a mental negotiation rather than a physical negotiation because he just wasn't interested. (laughs) I like the sound of Barney. Yeah, he's fabulous, but I I am very biased. (laughs) As I think you are and rightfully so. Very much so, very much so. I, 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 I think I used a saying in the book that every dog person thinks their dog is the best one and we're all correct yes oh perfect (laughs) I think that's a perfect way to end our conversation (laughs) enough said um people can actually follow your dog on Instagram can't they yes yes it's at little Bertie the dog absolutely go ahead and do that I love seeing dogs on Instagram and I think I'll go say hi to Barney later today Yes, good idea. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kate, for chatting with us. It's just been so fun. And, um, yeah, congratulations on this book, which obviously is um, really fascinating to read and so beautifully and engagingly written. So um, thank thank you for that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's very kind. It's my glad pleasure. You liked it. I did. I did. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure lots of people will as well, even if they're cat people. Yeah, I've I've been speaking there with Kate Lever, who is a journalist and an author, and she's written a new book called Good Dog, which is out through HarperCollins Australia. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.